Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to read verse 20 to verse 33. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to the Holy Scriptures, we're conscious of how numb and dull and thoughtless we can be. And Father, I just pray this morning for your help. And Lord, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would remove the impediments that prevent us from seeing the beauty, the majesty of Jesus, the meaning of Jesus, the meaning of his suffering, the meaning of his trouble. And Lord, I just ask that you would do a work this morning in all, in all of our hearts and in my heart. And Lord, I pray you would glorify your name this morning and you would help us see things that we can't see apart from you, Lord. So I just pray and commit this time to you. And Lord, help us to see again that we might love you and worship you and praise you for who you are. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Christ's Hour of Trouble and Triumph. Christ's Hour of Trouble and Triumph. And as we look at this passage this morning, it's important for us to realize what we're dealing with here when we look at the Bible, but especially when we look at this passage. If I had titled this morning's message, 
Steve's hour of trouble and triumph, you would say, who's Steve and who cares, right? But we're not talking about someone who is unidentifiable to us, and we're not talking about someone who is irrelevant to us. This morning, I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ, the one who you and I believe is the Messiah, the one who you and I believe is our Savior and our Lord. That's who we're talking about, and that's who we're considering. It's his hour of trouble and triumph that this passage is teaching us about, and this hour of his trouble and triumph has absolutely everything to do with you and I. And so, who are we talking about Jesus? Who cares? We care. Because we know who he is, and it has everything to do with us. So we care very much. And furthermore, here's another reason why we care. And what we need to understand as we're looking at this passage, we're looking at a, a section of scripture that is holy ground. Now all of scripture is God's word and holy and we tremble before it, but I think there are degrees. There's the holy of holies. And the scripture before us is holy ground. We're, we're in the middle of Passion Week in the narrative of the Gospel of John, which began at Palm Sunday and which ended with Easter Sunday. It's also called Holy Week. We're right in the midst of that now. And what that means is we're, we're now considering the very end of Jesus' time in the flesh. We've come now to the end of his time on earth. And not only to the very end of his time on earth, but we've come to the precise purpose and the precise reason that he came into the world. That's what we're thinking about here. The end and the purpose for which Jesus our Lord came. And as Jesus said, this is the hour to which I came. So really, this is what it's all about. Throughout the Gospel of John, you'll notice Jesus is always saying that my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Or they tried to grab him and, and seize him, but his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And now he declares for the first time, my hour has come. This is it. even more holy than just the fact we've come to his hour, in this section we have a fairly detailed and extensive discussion about Christ's hour. So my point here is not only that we've come to his hour, but now he's talking about his hour out of the very mouth of Christ himself. He's discussing it. So we've come to the, to the head, we've come to the point, and Jesus is talking about it. And so in light of all this, brothers and sisters and friends, we're looking at Jesus, that's who he is. And we've arrived at the point of it all, and he's speaking about the point of it all, and so it befits us to pay a special attention to what Jesus is saying here in this passage. So I say all that to say as we consider this passage, we need to understand what we're looking at here. This is a very important passage. It's also a very thick passage. There is so much to say here. And we're not going to be able to say it all in one morning or two mornings even. But I have divided this sermon up into two parts. So this morning we're going to look at Christ's hour of trouble. And next week, God willing, we'll look at 
Christ's hour of triumph. We'll look at the second half of the passage that we read. So this morning, we're going to consider his trouble. His trouble. So I've divided this morning's sermon into three sections. Number one, we're going to look at how the coming of the Greeks to Jesus stirred up Christ's trouble. Number two, we'll look at what Christ said about his death while in his trouble. So now he's experiencing this trouble and he's speaking about his death. We're going to consider that. And thirdly, we're going to consider the reason Christ was troubled on this occasion. So number one, how the coming of the Greeks stirred up Christ's trouble. So let's look again at verse 20 and 21. Now the setting of the passage is, as you know, the Passover, and Jews came from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was actually a contemporary of Jesus, he lived in Jesus' time, he commented that on, on one occasion they took a record of how many people came to that Passover, and he said that the estimate of how many people were there was roughly three million people. Three million people. And actually, Josephus was saying that there was three million people who were cleansed and ceremonially acceptable to offer sacrifices at the time. So there was, according to Josephus, even more than three million. So he's just saying there was three million ceremonially clean Jews at that time. Um, other historians say that the population of Jerusalem in Jesus' day was about 600,000 people. So a lot of people came to the Passover um, year by year. A lot of people descended upon Jerusalem. And among the people that came, among the Jews, there were Gentiles who came. Probably not many. There were some, as this verse tells us in verse 20, there were some Greeks among them. And these are Gentiles. These are not Jews. And they're also not formal converts to Judaism because a Gentile could convert to Judaism. He could say, you know what, I don't want to be a Gentile. I want to bind myself to the house of Israel and to the family of Abraham. So I'm going to be circumcised and I'm going to be baptized and I'm going to renounce my Gentile-ishness, whatever, and I'm going to become a Jew. And that happened. It wasn't common, but it happened. It wasn't even encouraged, by the way, by, by the Jews themselves. But there were Gentiles who, while, while they weren't formal converts to Judaism, or they hadn't formally become a part of Israel, they, they believed in the God of Israel. They believed that there was only one God, and he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't think they needed to become a Jew to worship him. And they came and honored him at this festival. So what could the Gentiles do at this festival? At the festival? Well, the Gentiles, if you know anything about the temple, they, they had an outer court that they were allowed to go into, right? So the Gentiles couldn't go beyond a certain barrier. And there was a court called the Court of the Gentiles. There was a sign that they had on the wall that separated the Court of the Gentiles from the next court where only Jews could go, and it warned them, and it said this, and I quote, because archaeologists have dug up this sign and they have it preserved. It's pretty amazing. Quote, no stranger or foreigner or non-Jew 
is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. And they dug that sign up. So the Gentiles were certainly permitted to come to the festival, to come to that court. They were even permitted to bring a sacrifice, which a Jew would take for them into the place of sacrifice. They wouldn't do that themselves. The law of Moses tells us that they were not to eat of the Passover lamb. So when the Passover lamb was sacrificed and that meal was consumed, the Gentiles wouldn't be eating that. Um, but yet they still came. It's a remarkable thing. Now, I want us to consider some hidden context here that John doesn't go into, but he assumes I think we understand. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that the day after Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry when he came in uh, to Jerusalem for that final Passover on the donkey for Passion Week, the day after, he actually cleansed the temple again. So he went into the temple a second time. He did that at the beginning of his ministry. And then later at the end of his earthly ministry, he goes in again. He sees the money changers are still there. He sees them selling animals and merchandise. And he makes a whip and he, he drives them out. And the court that he would have driven them out from would have been the court of the Gentiles. That's where they sold the animals and did all that money-changing stuff. And here's what Jesus said on that occasion, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Stop making my, my father's house a house of merchandise. As it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So it's interesting that Jesus is conscious of the fact that Gentiles were there, that Gentiles were supposed to be there, and that what the Jews were doing in the court of the Gentiles was a perversion and a corruption of what God intended. This is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, and you're making it just this marketplace. Certainly not honoring to the Gentiles, and certainly not honoring to God. And so that is the hidden context. Maybe these Greek people heard about this incident. I mean, I'm sure they could not have heard about it. And maybe they're coming to Jesus because of this incident. And maybe they felt something was lacking. They know God is the God of Israel. They come to the festival. They want to worship. But something is lacking. And here's this man, this, this prophet who does these miracles they've heard. And he's cleansed the court of the Gentiles. And he stood up for the Gentiles. And he said, God's house is a prayer for all nations. So they come to him, and I believe they're not coming to him merely out of some base curiosity, like, oh, there's a miracle worker here, we want to go see him. But I believe they're coming to him because they are honestly seeking God. How do I, how do I know that? Or how, how can we say that they're honestly seeking God? Well, I think that hidden context, but second of all, Jesus' strong reaction that he has when he hears that they're coming to him. I think if they were just coming to him with some base curiosity, oh, we're not really interested in God, we're just interested in seeing, seeing this magician or whatever, I don't think he would have the reaction that he had. Furthermore, the, the context of John 12 here indicates that there's a theme going on about the Gentiles coming to God. 
and coming to Christ. So look at verse 19. The Pharisees, I think, prophesy something better than they realize. The whole world is going after him. Now, of course, they don't mean the whole world, but they're like Caiaphas saying something better than they know. Yes, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to go after him. And in verse 32, we have the same theme. If Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all to himself. And so there's this theme that God is drawing the Gentiles to himself, and here they are. Now look at verse 22. It's interesting that Jesus' disciples, I don't think, know what to do with these Gentiles, right? Why doesn't Philip just go right to Jesus? Why does he go to Andrew first, and then Andrew and Philip go to Jesus? And I think this indicates that they don't really quite know what to do here. So Philip has to, you know, consult and talk it over with Andrew a bit. Contrast that with his eagerness in chapter 1, Philip, his eagerness in chapter 1 to run to his friend Nathaniel and say, we have found him, the Messiah. Come, you know, come and see him. He's so eager to bring Nathaniel to Jesus. Here it seems he's hesitating. So they weren't sure. And how does Jesus react when, the, when Philip and Andrew tell him that the Gentiles want to see him? are seeking him. Well, we can see from his words that followed, verse 23 to verse 26, and his statement in verse 27, that the coming of the Gentiles to see Jesus profoundly stirs Jesus to his core. And this is kind of shocking. Or, I mean, if we don't really understand why, it's shocking. What, what's going on here, right? Why is Jesus so stirred by the coming of the Gentiles to him? D.A. Carson comments in his commentary, the approach of the Greeks is a kind of trigger, a signal that the climactic hour has dawned for Jesus. Which is what he says in verse 23. The hour has come. And he's troubled. Now, the word means he's afraid. He's anxious. He's distressed. Have you ever felt afraid? Have you ever felt any of those things? Anxious, fearful, or distressed? You know what it feels like, right? I know what it feels like. That's how Jesus felt at that moment. according to scripture. Now, it wasn't because Jesus wasn't glad that they came, you know. The Gentiles are, are seeking you. Oh, no, that's not his idea. Uh, he's not troubled because they're seeking him. He says, oh, this is going to ruin the plan, you know. The, the, the plan is getting ruined by these guys coming to me. He's glad they're coming. In fact, I'm sure this would be refreshing for Jesus. And I think their timing could not have been more perfect. Because consider, the Jews are rejecting Jesus. The leaders are rejecting Jesus. Jesus knows that they're all going to turn against him in a matter of days. They're already turning against him. And so it would be refreshing for Jesus that some people are sincerely seeking him and wanting to inquire after him. 
I think this, was a, this would be a token to Jesus of God's spirit at work. You know, even though all these people are rejecting me, even though I came unto my own and my own received me not, God's spirit is at work in the world drawing people to me. So this is a sign that God's at work. This is a sign that God's plan is right on schedule. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, how it was all part of God's plan that the Jewish nation would reject Jesus as a whole and that by that, God would bring in the Gentiles, right? And so Jesus is aware of that. Jesus knows God's got a plan and he can see in the coming of the Gentiles, God's at work, God's spirit's at work, God's plan is happening right here. Israel's rejecting me, here come the Gentiles. It's happening just as God determined. And so you think, well, it's refreshing, the timing is perfect, God's plan's taking place, God's spirit's at work. Why is he troubled? But he's troubled precisely for those very same reasons. Because the coming of the Gentiles to him, friends, brought to Jesus' immediate consciousness the fact that God's spirit was at work. God's plan was transpiring. The timing of their coming was perfect. His hour was finally here. He was about to die. So it shows him everything's happening just on schedule. I am. I have now come to the time of my death. And so the coming of the Greeks filled Jesus' mind with his death. And he proceeds to speak about his death. So this is why his heart was stirred up to trouble by the coming of the Greeks. His death and his hour had come. Secondly, I'd like us to consider what Christ said on this occasion. Now that his mind is filled with his death and he's troubled, he begins to speak from his heart about his death and about his hour. One writer says this, the thoughts of Jesus at this time were as deep as his emotions were intense. So what does he say? Well, look with me at verse 23. Here's the first thing Jesus says in his trouble. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So here he makes an important statement about his death a very important statement about his death. So one thing we learn from this statement is that Jesus' glorification does not happen apart from his death. He is glorified by his death. Now, how is that? Well, we might say, well, the death of Christ leads or results in his glory. So... You know, before Jesus can be resurrected, before Jesus can be transformed, before Jesus can be exalted to the right hand of the Father, before Jesus can receive all authority in heaven and earth, he has to die. That has to take place. And so his hour has come to die. But what that means is he's going to die and it's going to result in his glory. So he says, oh, the hour of my glorification has come because beyond my death, I'm going to be glorified. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that Jesus humbled himself unto death, and for that reason, God highly exalted him. 
So we could say, well, Jesus is conscious that he's going to be highly exalted because he's going to die. And that's true. His death results in his glorification. But I'd like to suggest something further than that. Jesus' death is, in a very real sense, his glory. What, what do you think? What is the glory of Jesus? Do you think it's merely that which results after his crucifixion? His glory is that he's highly exalted. Does that exhaust the idea is what I'm saying? Of course that's his, that is glorious. But can we not say also that his glory is revealed in his death itself? Because his death ultimately reveals who he is, and it's his death that reveals to us how amazing God really is. So we see his beauty and his majesty and his glory in the death of Christ itself. Now, don't we know this by experience? When we sing about God on Sunday mornings or throughout the week, and we praise him and we glorify him and we exalt him and we say, you are so amazing, God, for what reason do we say that? Well, for many reasons, right? You're so amazing, God, because you're eternal. You're so amazing, God, because you created the world by your word. And when we look around at the universe, we say, wow, what wisdom, what power. You're awesome. But do we not as Christians have a reason to praise him? And we would even say this is the main reason that we praise him, because he's revealed how amazing he is in his death itself, right? We'd say, God, you're so amazing and you're so beautiful and you're so wonderful because you in humility came to the earth and died for us. And in, in, in seeing your humility and your shame in the cross, we see how glorious and amazing you really are. And we worship you for your love and for your righteousness and for your attributes revealed there in the cross. So I'd like to suggest when Jesus said, the hour of my glory has come, it's not only what will result from the cross, but it's in the cross, in the death of Christ itself. Look at verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. That is, Father, glorify who you are. Glorify your attributes. Glorify your nature. Glorify your character. And do you remember in Exodus... Moses asked God, Lord, reveal to us your glory. And what does God do? And it's interesting because if you think about it, God has already revealed so many wondrous miracles to Moses, right? Moses had seen how God was the sovereign Lord over Egypt and over the nations and over nature. And Moses had a true sense of awe of God and yet he said, God, show me your glory. And what this is revealing, friends, is that we do not truly know who God is apart from the revelation of his nature in Christ. You see, Muslims don't know who God is. Jews don't know who God is. Even though they know God exists, they know he's eternal, they know he's powerful, they even praise him for those things, but they don't truly know his glory because they don't know the revelation of the character of God revealed in Christ, which is what Jesus saying, my hour has come. We're going to now reveal the glory of God's nature. The Father and the Son will be glorified in the death of Christ. What does God say to Moses? 
the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, full of loving kindness, full of compassion, forgiving iniquity and sin. I mean, he reveals these things about himself, right? This is, if you don't know me this way, then you don't know me. But don't think I'm just merciful and compassionate in sort of a vacuum and I'm just, you know, dispensing mercy and there's no cost because he also says, but I don't let the guilty go unpunished. So he's saying, if you want to know who I am, I am a righteous, just God. I mean, everything about this is about righteousness and sin and guilt and forgiveness and holiness. And he's saying, if you want to know who I am, Moses, you're going to have to look beyond just my existence and my eternity and my power in nature. You've got to know me as the righteous, just God who's the judge of all the earth, who punishes sin, but yet who's merciful and forgiving. You know, That's what Jesus is revealing. God answers Jesus' prayer in verse 28. Glorify your name with a voice out of heaven. He says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Here's how I take that. I have glorified my name. I have shown throughout history that I am righteous. And I have shown throughout history that I don't let the guilty go unpunished. And I have shown throughout history that I am a God of grace and loving kindness and mercy. But I'm going to glorify my name again and I will do so in an even greater, in an even more intense, in an even more immeasurable way by the death of my son. He's the ultimate revelation of God's character. I don't think he's the only revelation of God's character, but he's the ultimate revelation of God's character. So Jesus is troubled by his death. His thoughts is full of his death. And the first thing he says is, the hour has come for not just my death, but for my glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man and for God the Father to be glorified. So his death is about the revelation of who he is and who God is. Number two, verse 24, here's what he says. He makes another statement about his death, which is really remarkable. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it, bears, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, technically, seeds don't die, right? Scientists will criticize Jesus for saying that. But they're really being nitpicky and pedantic because Jesus, first of all, is not saying something that is... Um, unusual to a Jewish hearer because this was a common picture that Jews would use when they talked about death and resurrection. And when he says a seed must die, what he means is, you know, when you sow seed, you put it into the ground, and that's a symbol of burial. That's what he's saying. He's not speaking scientifically the seed must die. He's saying you put the seed into the ground just like a dead body you put into the ground. The seed is a picture of a representation of burial, and then it comes out of the ground again, and it comes out of the ground in this different form that's beautiful and wonderful, a completely different form. And so this was, a, this was a common way that, this is a common analogy Jews would use. You'll remember the Apostle Paul uses the very same analogy in 1 Corinthians 15. And you can read in Jewish rabbinical writings in the Talmud, they use this exact same analogy just like Paul used it. 
but when the Jews would use this analogy, and when Paul used the analogy, the idea was you go into the ground in one form, you come out of the ground in an altogether different form, in a resurrected, incorruptible body, something so much more glorious and wonderful. So Jesus is not unique in using this analogy in referring to his death and resurrection, but here's what's unique about it. Here's what's totally unique about it. Jesus is using the analogy in a way that points to the meaning of his death and what he's contrasting here in verse 24 is not the form by which the seed goes into the ground and the form by which it comes out of the ground merely, but he's contrasting that one thing goes into the ground and one thing comes out? No, that many comes out. It goes into the ground alone and it comes out with multiplicity. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this remarkable statement, friends. If you want to understand the death of Jesus, well, here he's telling you about it and he says this. He's saying that he, one man, will die and many will live. If he doesn't die, he remains alone. He alone is the righteous one. He, he alone is the one with eternal life. He alone is the one who has fellowship with the Father. But if I die, then it's not me alone anymore. Then many are righteous. Many are raised with me. Many now have eternal life and are in fellowship with the Father. It's truly a remarkable statement that you won't find in Jewish writings. One dies, many bear the benefits of that. All of the other apostles draw this out in their writings. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says that by the obedience of one man, many are made righteous, right? This is what Jesus is basically saying. I die, one, many are raised. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, the, that Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He was only one righteous man. Everyone else is unrighteous. He suffered for us that he might bring us to God. So he died to bring us to God, to raise us to his Father. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus tasting death for every man, that he might bring many sons to glory. That's what he's saying here. Jesus dies to bring many sons to glory to glory. So this is what's on his mind as he's thinking now about his death. He dies for many. Verse 25 and 26, here's the third thing Jesus says about his death. Now it may seem in verse 25 and 26 that Jesus has changed subjects or that he has changed his focus, that he's no longer thinking about his death, that he's now thinking about us. And he's now thinking about his disciples. And it's true that Jesus certainly in these verses draws others into the scope of his thoughts. But I, I'd like to submit to you that in verse 25 and 26, he is still focused on his death. This is what he's thinking about is his death. In verse 25, we have a universal principle. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world 
will keep it to life eternal. That is a principle that is applicable to us, and he applies it to us in other occasions. But I believe Jesus is applying it to himself here on this occasion. Do you think Jesus was tempted on all points? Right? Do you think Jesus was ever tempted to love his life and to avoid losing it and to have self-preservation? Well, we know he was, right? Because we know Satan came and tempted him with those very ideas. So Jesus is applying this to himself. And I get the sense that in his trouble, he's thinking about his death now, and he's essentially reminding himself of this truth and of this principle. And he's saying, look, the time has come for me to die. It's time for me to set my mind on, the, on reality here in the midst of my temptation. If I seek to preserve my life, I'll lose it. To love oneself as an ultimate priority. To say, you know, the, the most important thing is that, I, is that I don't perish. The most important thing is that I keep my, my life in this world the most important thing is that, you know, I preserve my physical life, my physical reputation and all that. Jesus is saying is, is, a, is essentially idolatry. It's a denial of God's rights over you. It's a denial of God's sovereignty. It's a denial of truth. And it is ultimately to hate God and to hate your own life because you'll lose it. You try to hold on to it and it will be lost from you. Jesus shows us the way of life and actually preserving your life is not to hold tightly to your physical life and reputation, but to trust in God, to trust in his sovereignty, to believe in his truth. Even if that means dying for him, for truth. And Jesus comforts us here because while Jesus' death was more than an example, it was an example of this very principle. And so we can say, when Jesus tells us, don't love your life unto death, uh, Jesus isn't telling us to do something that he himself didn't do. And Jesus himself went through that, and he himself was exalted by God, and he's encouraging us by his example. In verse 26, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, instead of hating me, if you're going to love me and serve me and believe in what I'm telling you, then guess what? Inevitably, you have to follow me. And as I was hated by this world, as I was rejected, as I was put to death, that's going to happen to you too. To follow Jesus in the way of truth is to follow him in the way of persecution. And there's no getting away from that. But Jesus promises us here, if we follow him in the way of truth and in the way of persecution, we will also follow him in the way of glory. We will be glorified together with him and he will honor us. The Father will honor us as his disciples. So yes, Jesus is talking about us, but the focus, I think, in his mind is his own death. He's saying, look, the time has come for me to die. I'm about to be rejected. And this is just the way it is when you follow the truth in this hostile world. But God is with us and God will be with us and honor us and glorify us if we believe 
and cling to the truth. So here's what he says about his death and the hour of his trouble. And I'd like to come to my last point this morning, the reason why Christ was troubled at this time. Jesus' mind was full of his death, but this brings us to the question, why was he troubled? Because what we've just considered is, he's come to his hour, but what is his hour? It's the hour of his glorification. It's the hour of his saving fruitfulness. And he just told us, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. So he's just given us the principle, hey, don't hold too too tightly to your life. If you're being persecuted for righteousness sake and truth sake, don't, don't shrink back. That's the way it is in this evil world, and you're going to be blessed and retain your life if you, if you stay true to the Lord and his truth. And as we're going to see next week, it's also the hour of his triumph. It's not only the hour of his trouble. He's going, on to, tell, he's going to tell us in a moment, Satan is going to be cast out. He's going to draw all to himself. This is what the hour means. And so we ask, why are you troubled? You saw all this, Jesus. Shouldn't this be your happy hour, right? Or shouldn't you be glad your hour has come? The Father will be glorified. People will be saved. Satan will be cast out. Why are you troubled and afraid and anxious and distressed? But when we think like that and we ask that question, what I think it reveals about us is that we are like children who don't appreciate the cost of how things come to us. And we don't appreciate how something that is precious is acquired. You know how kids are like that, right? They don't understand how that came to you. They don't understand the cost of that. So it's very shallow for us to think, well, come on, Jesus, all these beautiful things now have arrived. Why are you upset? Or we foolishly think that fear and hope are incompatible. Or that joy and sorrow are incompatible. Or that loyalty and obedience and struggle is incompatible. You ever had those thoughts? You know? Well, if you're loyal and obedient, there'll be no struggle. If you're happy, there'll be no sadness. If you're sad, there'll be no happiness. If you're Fearful, there'll be no hope. If, they're, if you're hopeful, there'll be no fear, you know. But that's not what we see in Jesus, is it? The great 18th century commentator Bengal said, the horror of death and the ardor of his obedience were meeting together. A.B. Bruce says, his soul is not only elated with the prospect of coming glory, but troubled as with the prospect of impending disaster. So in other words, this is kind of a complex moment in the life of Jesus. And we see in his own life that one thing is not nullifying the other. His seeing that his hour of his glory has come is not nullifying his trouble and his fear. And that's a really significant thing. Because we need to ask ourselves, if Jesus, the Son of God, I mean, this is God in the flesh. This is the eternal God. If he is troubled and distressed and anxious and afraid, even though 
he's reflecting on all the amazing benefits of his hour. You know, think about that for a minute. He's God. He's distressed. He's distressed while meditating on how amazing this hour is and all the good things that are going to come from this hour. If he is afraid, we have to ask, what must be the cost of all these wonderful things? Right? What must be the cost of all these wonderful things? Now, if we consider the cost at first glance, the cost seems to be something familiar to us all. Okay, Jesus, what's the cost? I mean, okay, all these beautiful things are coming. What does it cost you? It seems to be something familiar to us all. Death. And when we, when we hear about that, we say, well, Jesus is about to die. We might say, well, come on, Jesus, everybody dies, right? And lots of people die. Lots of people die bravely. So at first glance, what's the cost? Death, that's it? That's all you're freaking out about? Everybody dies. But I think that the longer you watch Jesus in his distress... And John doesn't go into great detail, but the synoptics give us more detail. I mean, he's falling on his face, he's sweating, he's getting up, he's praying. He wants his disciples to be with him, awake. When you watch Jesus in his distress and you reflect upon who he is, then I think we begin to realize, you know, maybe I'm the one who's not understanding what death really is. You know, I'm criticizing Jesus and saying, come on, Jesus, it's just death. You don't seem to understand, Jesus, it's just death. But maybe we don't understand what death is. Maybe the whole world doesn't understand really what death is. Maybe Jesus understood what death is better than anyone else. And indeed, brothers and sisters, that is true Jesus did understand death. And so in a sense, Jesus died in a way that no one else has really died because he fully understood what was going on when he died. And he was troubled. The preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, I hear him say that my soul is troubled and am conscious of sorrows that I cannot fathom of a travail that baffles me when I try to comprehend it. Do you feel that way when you read that? Verse 27, my soul has become troubled. Do you read that and say, I get it? Or like G. Campbell Morgan, I don't get it. It's deeper than I can understand. It's interesting that the Gospel of John doesn't have a Gethsemane scene like in the synoptics where Jesus is praying that the cup would pass to him at that moment in the garden, sweating profusely. It doesn't have that scene, but this is the equivalent of that scene in the Gospel of John. This is the equivalent of Gethsemane, and I want you to notice that it, is chrono- it chronologically precedes the Garden of Gethsemane. So before Jesus is even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's struggling with the very same things that, he's that he will experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning that what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt long before the Garden of Gethsemane. 
which is kind of interesting considering what the Mormons teach about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Because they interpret his suffering in the garden as that's his atonement. But I think here in John we realize, well then what you'll have to logically say is he's kind of been atoning for our sins through his suffering all his ministry and all his life, right? Why limit it to the garden? Right here he's experiencing the same thing. Morgan goes on to say, Gethsemane was more than an experience of an hour or two in the darkness of night. Gethsemane was the experience of his soul all the way to Calvary. It was certainly most intense at Gethsemane. But don't you think that all through Jesus' life, that he foresaw his death, he understood what death meant, he understood what he was about to experience, and that he trembled and feared when he thought about it all throughout his life? Was he clueless his whole life? I see throughout the life of Jesus a sober man who probably had a thousand mini Gethsemanes. And every one of those thousand mini Gethsemanes that he experienced says, I love you. Because he could have turned back at any one of those points, right? What about in heaven before Jesus even came? Do you, think the, do you think the son trembled at the thought of death and yet said, Father, your will be done? Or do you think there's Jesus in the perfection of glory with God, in the perfect love of God, in perfect fellowship with God, as Philippians 2 says, equal with God, and do you think he laid aside all of that and came to this hostile cesspool of a world that was seeped in sin, dominated by Satan and rebellion? And do you think he came into the world to, to bear our sins and it was only after he came that he said, whoops, what did I get myself into? <laughs> right? I didn't think it would be this bad. I don't, think, I don't think so. Friends, if you want to understand the death of Christ, I think a good place, a good way to do that is to just think about heaven and hell. Just think about those two places. Think about a place that is the most perfect place where there is no sin. There is a perfect, holy, righteous God who dwells in total righteousness, sinlessness, and bliss. And love. And then think about a place that is the most horrible place you could possibly think of. Totally the opposite of that. A place of pain and suffering and hate and uncleanliness and evil. The opposite of bliss and pleasure. And then consider that according to the Bible, sinners and the unrighteous and the devil and his angels deserve hell. That's what we deserve. And the Bible teaches us that for someone to inherit the kingdom of God and, and the joys of eternal life, they have, God requires them to be sinless and perfect without any defilement whatsoever. They have to fit in perfectly in that holy place. So there's, the, there's a problem there. You have to fit in perfectly in this place 
where God dwells with righteousness and purity, but we don't and we deserve hell. And so the question is, when I think about heaven and hell, and that the justice of God divides those two places like a chasm because of what God requires and because of what I deserve, then the question is, how is it that somebody who deserves hell, how is it that somebody that deserves hell could could be in a place or could go to a place or could end up in eternity with God in intimacy with him? That's the question. And we see, according to Scripture, it's not going to be by our own works and by our own obedience and by changing and amending our lives that we're going to go from deserving hell and fitting in there to attaining eternal life. Every one of us has to come to that place where we, re- where we give up hope in ourselves and we realize, I deserve that. I'm not going to attain to this according to the justice of God. And I don't know where you all are in your life, but I, I pray that you come to that place or you have come to that place where you've given up hope in yourself. You consider what God requires and there's no way I can do it. But that is exactly how we see what is going on on the cross Because the cross is the answer to that question. The death of Christ is the answer to that question. How could someone who deserves hell spend an eternity with God? The answer is the cross. The death of Christ is what enables those who are worthy of hell and deserve hell to spend an eternity with the Lord in communion with God. Because what Jesus did on the cross when he came and died the Bible teaches us is that he took all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness and he assumed the responsibility for that and he bore the penalty that we deserve. He took our wages. He suffered the hell that we deserve. He substituted himself in our place as a sacrificial sacrifice. All those sacrifices were just a a symbol of him, and it's because of his death, bearing our sin, bearing our unrighteousness and our penalty, because of what he did, that is how we can be righteous, and that is how we can be transformed from someone who is going to hell to someone who is going to spend eternity with God. As the Bible tells us, he bore our curse by becoming a curse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. That's what the cross is all about. He was cursed by God on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, that's why he was troubled, because it was so costly. And it's something we fully don't understand. But I pray that as we reflect upon Jesus' trouble here this morning, that we reflect upon what an immense cost it was for him to save us. What, What... What an incredible thing our sin must be to God. What an incredibly righteous God he must be for this to be the cost and for Jesus to tremble at it. And when you consider the cost and his trouble, it's not a sign of weakness on on Christ's part. It's actually a sign of the strength of his love for us. Because I submit to you, if Jesus had not been troubled as he considered the weight of the cross and the weight of dying for our sins then we wouldn't have been able to see his love. I want you to imagine for a moment here a man who's afraid of heights, someone who's deathly afraid of heights. 
And for whatever reason, he's in a situation in, it, in which in order to save his child's life, he has to walk across a beam that is suspended across two sky-rise buildings. And he's deathly afraid of heights. So what does he do? Because he loves his child and he wants to save his child's life. Well, he walks and he is afraid. And so he trembles. But as he goes and as he trembles and as he's afraid and as he walks, he in, that, in doing that reveals the immense love that he has for the child. Because we might say, oh, you trembled so you don't love. I mean, if you really love me, why wouldn't you just stride across there without trembling? But he can't change the fact that he's afraid of heights. But what he reveals is that he loves the child. And we wouldn't have seen it if he just strode across as if it was, yeah, no big deal, right? I'll just do that for you. We wouldn't have understood the depth of how much that child is loved, nor could we understand the depth of how loved you are by God if we had not been able to see the trouble of Christ. I hope you see that this morning. I think when we understand who Christ is and who God is and we understand his trouble, we no longer have to go back and forth. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. We look at his trouble and we look, he went through with it. He loves me. That's a fact of history. Jesus was ter terrified to death and he, he did it for you because he loves you. So in closing this morning, we see that the Greeks were seeking Jesus and that was the signal that Jesus' Jesus' hour had come, the hour of his glory, the hour of his fruitfulness, the hour of his triumph, but it was also the hour of his fear because he'd suffer the wrath of God in our place. And by dying for us, he would not remain alone. He would bring us out of death into life and into perfect fellowship with God for all of eternity because of what he did and not because of our own worthiness or goodness or works. We give him all the glory and all the praise for that. So as we consider Jesus and what he's done for us, may we praise him as we will praise him forever, may we serve him even if it costs us. May we worship the God who has revealed his love and his righteousness and his mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, your trouble is deeper than we can understand. But I pray that this morning, as we just reflect upon your trouble and your words, I just pray that you would give us a fresh insight into how much you love us, Lord, and how willing you are to suffer in our place and to bear that tremendous burden. So, Lord, encourage our hearts. Remind us of your love and cause us to respond to you in praise.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.